Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. Complaints to the OIA are up. We'll ask if we need to worry. The Lords have been listening to Student Voice on the Office for Students. We'll see what they had to say. And does QR funding need a root and branch review? It's all coming up. If, if I was sitting on the board of the OFS, I would take one look at this evidence and realise I've now got a massive credibility problem. I cannot go opining about free speech in the way that they have done and the importance of it. Having this sort of evidence floating out there, it, it just it's just not a credible position. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me, refreshed after the Easter break, as usual, three brilliant guests. In Clerkenwell, Anthony Finkelstein is President at City University of London. Anthony, your highlight of the week, please. I just returned from a fascinating trip uh, to Singapore where I was reviewing their National Cyber Programme. That was very interesting, actually. Interesting and fattening, I have to say, in equal <laughs> measure. <laughs> well, sounds delicious. Good. Uh, in Harborn, Birmingham, Smita Jamdar is partner at Shakespeare Martino. Smita, your highlight of the week, please. Well, I've just come back, Jim, from spending two days in Winchester at the AHUA uh, a spring conference um, so that was a lovely combination of a, an absolutely glorious old city and then some really fresh forward thinking about the future of higher education so I've had a very stimulating start to the week. Cracking stuff and in Berry, James Coe is Associate Editor at Wonky. James your highlight of the week please. Hello Jim I'm at that stage of fatherhood where everything my baby does is amazing and uh, yesterday she rolled from her back onto her side so I'm convinced Woo! a bright future is ahead of her so that round, is round absolutely of my highlight. You got it so, on video? <laughs> uh, I do I'll, I'll send it round for baby Oliver celebration for her this morning. Very good there's a new Slack channel. Now uh, we start this week with complaints. The OIA has published its annual report on grumbles in England and Wales and the numbers are up James. They are Jim you've read the report I've read the report so, I sometimes think about the OIA as being a bit like the fire service, and, and let me tell you why, right? So, their annual report demonstrates that complaints are up again, and of those, 3% were justified and 7% were partially justified. We have a bit of rebalancing towards academic issues, which they think is likely because of the end of no detriment policies. And we know there's been this big fire with over 400 complainants in a group complaint. There's been some tampering down of complaints that have come up. There's issues that are emerging. But I suppose the thing that concerns me is twofold. The OIA acknowledges that sometimes these fires are getting out of control, that there's delays, which means that uh, students aren't getting remedies, and often the only thing that is left is a financial remedy. On the other hand, complaints are roughly following a trend, which means I suppose one of two things to me coming out the back of COVID. Either there's a load of chip pans which have been let on, and then there's going to be fires that we're not aware of yet. Or secondly, that there's something going on in universities' internal processes, that we've got these flickers of problems somewhere that aren't being systematically picked up by the likes of OFS and feeding into regulations. 
So whilst there's all this, you know, putting out the fires, whilst all responding to these emergencies, I think there's clearly a case for more prevention. And I'm hoping that's where we might get to in this talk. Yes, interesting. Now, Anthony, one of the problems when we kind of look at the stats is that it's actually really difficult to kind of work out whether actual complaints on the ground are up or down because what we're only looking at here is stuff that reaches the adjudicator isn't it yes i mean i was reflecting on these figures and the first thing we have to to look at is you know the overall societal uh, societal context so i think that you know underpinning this is something of a long-standing trend that has to do with the change in um, the relationship between students and the higher education uh, uh, provider uh, providers, um, and it obviously be quite interesting to see what these figures look like when benchmarked against other types of, of service to see whether there's something you know much more general going uh, um, much more general going on. Uh, the thing that struck me most forcibly was um, the question about whether or not the greater systematization of complaints procedures at um, uh, at universities had got in the way of um, uh, early informal resolutions. Because when you looked at the examples in the case, you thought most of those should have been, they should never have even escalated the point of a formal complaint in the most mm. part. Yes, Smita, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because actually, you know, I mean, when I talk to student unions about the sort of complaints they get often, you know, between two students in a club or society or more generally they will say that they get a sense i'm not sure there are actual stats that back this up but they 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 clearly report a sense that more and more students are turning to formal ways in which to resolve their you know grumbles and grievances rather than the kind of you know sit down and do this informally that they might have done with an academic or another student 10 years ago yeah i think there's certainly um likely to be an element of you know if you start to promote procedures as you know the oia expects providers to do then it's it's natural that people will reach for those procedures when they feel um that they've got something that needs investigating and and a lot of the well almost all the procedures will have an informal stage at the beginning that should still allow for that kind of low-level discussion, at least between the institution and the student. Because what we have to remember about complaints procedures is they're not principally designed for resolving grievances between two individuals. They're designed for complaints about the institution to be taken forward. So that should be possible. I, when we work with institutions, I think where we, we see some of the um, the trend that Anthony was alluding to coming into play is once there is a formal stage that follows it, people become quite nervous about, you know, what are their parameters for agreeing things? Are they making admissions that might create problems further down the line? And it starts to bring into the whole thing something that's moved away from here's an issue that's causing another person some problems. How do we fix it? To how do I make sure I'm doing this in accordance with the with the procedure? Um, and I think the only way you can deal with that is to be, you know, very, very clear about the the kind of values, the service values of the institution that sit around the complaints procedure. You know, if we believe that we want to put things right quickly, then we should be empowering staff in, to, to deal with them in a way that they're comfortable and confident about. Um, but that's a level of kind of discussion about student complaints that I'm not hearing taking place, certainly, you know, systematically. I'm sure there are pockets of it going on. Yeah. If I may say, I think that is an extremely elegant account 
of um, uh, uh, of my principal observation on all um, uh, on all of this, and my gut feeling my gut feeling is that we are um, uh, that procedural concerns are overwriting the uh, ability to reach rapidly uh, more in, informal resolutions. And of course, it's quite interesting. I mean, so it's unsurprisingly in the, uh, uh, for things reaching the OIA that uh, um, um, it's procedural problems that then result in negative findings. James, this um, this thing about kind of prevention and learning is obviously interesting, partly because you know one of the one of the one of the paragraphs buried in the report that I always try and find first tells us how many of the OIA's recommendations back to a provider have been kind of sorted in that year. And, you know, there's a theory of change here, isn't there? The OIA sees a complaint, and if it, if, you know, if it says, you know, here's how you stop this happening in the future, it will make a recommendation, I guess, in, you know, lots of other processes like that. Coroners often do that. What's interesting, I think, is that this year, that number, that, that percentage of its recommendations sorted in the previous year is down to 60%. That was like 90-odd percent in 2018. So what's going on there? Yeah, and if, I, if I'm not mistaken from when I was reading the report yesterday, it's gone down year on year, generally, as a trend. And, I mean, Jim, I think there's two things here, right? So what what is the point of student complaints fundamentally? So on the one hand, it's about individuals getting redress where they've been badly treated or their experiences less than they affected or there's been a breach in, in some sense. And I think, as Anthony and Samita make the point, it is hard to tell whether that's 2,800 complaints is high, a high amount, a medium amount, a low amount, because it should be primarily or firstly about organisation to student redress. I think the second thing is I think the OIA, in its usual sort of tactful, measured, and I think considerate language, is nervous about the extent to which its reports are feeding into wider practice. And I think there's probably two pieces of evidence here. One is the case that you make that actually the proportion of universities who are adopting this good practice guidance that I think you you put as basically a slap in the wrist in the wonky blog this morning is declining. And I think secondly, I think if we were to be honest, there is little evidence, unless we haven't seen it or is not visible to us in some way, that the Office for Students is systematically capturing this information and making it part of its ongoing regulatory interventions and framework, un- unless we are missing it. So it almost feels like this OIA activity is happening somewhere over here. And then the rest of sort of these regulatory best practice, you know, prevention activities are happening in a different space. That That is my reading of it. Yes. I mean, I, I guess, Anthony, it would help if we knew sort of which providers. And it would also, I guess, help if we knew how many in- complaints were being settled internally, wouldn't it? it uh, uh, indeed. And there's, I mean, of course, look, zo- we zoom, uh, uh, um, uh, zoom, zoom back. Um, uh, we're talking about, what is it, 2.6 odd million students at higher education, uh, uh, provide, um, providers, fewer than 3,000, um, uh, uh, complaints going to the OIA, of which, what, 25%, something on, uh, um, on that result in some sort of, um, uh, uh resolu- um, res- you know, resolution resulting in pain, uh, uh, resulting in payment. So what? One in four thousand um, uh, students. We need to hold that in um, uh, in a degree of propor- uh, a degree of proportion. That's the first obs- uh, um, uh, observation. It, I, my interest would really also be in seeing the data, not just of what's going on in the providers, um, uh, but also benchmarked against 
how um, universities are performing against other classes of, um, of inverted commas public service providers. Yes, presumably both from an internal kind of complaints resolution perspective and also a whatever ombudsperson is available to each of those and, public services. And the, yeah. Tre- yeah, and yeah. the trends, yeah. what's happening with them. Uh, uh, what's happening with the trends? Yes, Smita, this 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 issue of the kind of relationship between OIA and OFS, and you know, being very in- English centric when talking about that, and obviously there's a new commission about to kind of appear in Wales. But that this relationship between the two, obviously, James makes the point. I've also made the point on the blog this morning that it's hard to see how OIA complaints material is feeding into regulation but we're about to get much more complexity than that aren't we with the free speech act um, harassment and sexual misconduct you know effectively there's a whole set of expectations around complaints that presumably could go to the i mean this is a this is about to fe- feels like this is about to be a real mess well, I mean, there's a there's a school of thought that says it's already a bit of a a bit of a mess. I think we have to be quite careful about trying to draw conclusions from data at this level. And and the reason I say that is is um, the point that's been made about you know fewer recommendations appear to be being adopted by universities, which might suggest that you know uh, universities aren't taking these things seriously. Part of that, I think, is that there are, there are now. Um, other aspects of regulation which might be covering some of the same things that the specific OIA recommendations are doing and they're being dealt with in a different way. It's also got to be fair to say, especially for smaller providers, that the the volume of guidance, requirements, regulation that's been thrown at them over a very short period of time genuinely makes it hard to, to do everything. So there is, there is going to be an element of prioritisation going on here. But the the other point, and this is really something I'd, I'd, I'd want to, to, to the sector to reflect on, is we're kind of saying, well, the OIA are saying this, and why isn't the OFS picking it up as regulation? Or, you know, asking the question, should it be picking up as regulation? The bit in the middle is about institutions doing what any autonomous institution, you know, that, that values its its uh, customers, its, repre- its, its reputation and so on would do, which is learning from those um, complaints themselves. So before it gets to regulation, there ought, in my view, to be some analysis of, you know, forget what's gone to the OIA, but complaints generally, and many institutions do do this, complaints generally, what are the themes? What are the trends? Is there a systematic problem? If so, what can be done about it to reduce the, the, you know, those, those issues in the future? Are these just one-off you know, mistakes that have happened? Is there a training need and so on? Um, and I think there's such a valuable source of institutional learning there that it would be a shame if we are just waiting for the OFS to pick it up and translate it into you know, more regulation. We should be embracing it and saying, what can we learn from it? Just on that, Samita, I, I think there's there's a really interesting cultural piece here, isn't there? Because you can look at the number of complaints in two ways, I think. Either I might be sat as an institution knowing my overall complaint figure, or I might look at this global data and say, there's not many complaints, therefore this means students having a reasonable experience and you know, basically things could be better, but they're okay. Or there is the other reflection, which is, is this fewer complaints than we would expect? And what does that mean about our processes and how are we learning from it? Yeah. And um, our student engagement, James, you know, if yeah, people aren't complaining, that's not necessarily a good thing. No. no. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, part of this is also about that. Like, I think people would feel the OFS is a more um, 
perhaps punitive is strong, but a more rules-based uh, regulator. And actually being seen as a provider that attracts lots of complaints is inherently a bad thing. But does that stymie the learning in some way would be a worry. Hmm. But, and, 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 and Anthony, isn't this, isn't this really the question? So, you know, either the media and social media were lying in terms of the volume of students that were really upset with their university in this kind of second half of COVID and over industrial action, or actually students on balance decided they were happy and decided not to complain. Like, which, which you know, something's going on here, isn't there? I mean, I mean the first thing to uh, um, uh, uh, to say, you know, the, the observation, um, social media is, um, uh, is misleading, uh, misleading us is a, um, is a given um, uh, in, and that in respect of all dis- uh, debates. So I think I start at that. Uh, I start at that point. Uh, I feel personally less qualified to say anything about the um, uh, uh, about the business of the uh, what was going on during the uh, the pandemic because I wasn't working in higher education at that uh, at that point. Only returning to higher education late um, uh, uh, later. Um, my my sense, informal sense, is that um, uh, students reflecting on their experience, uh, experience are you know are unha- uh, unhappy um, at the time. Students get on with what they get on uh, uh, with, and then once there's a bit of a distance, uh, re- relaxation in the immediate pressure, they, um, uh, they the, their opinions may change may change. Uh, let me just say, as a university president, I get to sort of. Um, it's funny. I, I, I don't, on the whole, tend to look at the overall statistics for uh, for complaints, but I often get sight of individual complaints that sort of bubble up uh, to uh, to me by one way or another. Frankly, just directly emailed uh, uh, to me. And what strikes me quite a lot is, of course, the tension uh, between an increasing demand to make individualized adjustment to quite complex personal circumstances and um, uh, the pressure to be more systematic um, uh, to uh, and simply the pressure of, of scale. Um, so those two those two tensions, I think, show up quite strongly in the case studies in the OIA report. Yes, and and I mean, you know, there's probably a you know, there's probably an entire podcast on uh, on on that question. But Smita, you know, you, you know, the, the the sort of cases you come across from where from where you're on. You know, kind of advising universities on, on on some of these. That's that that is definitely a trend, isn't it? Where, you know, both because of legislation, but also because increasingly uh, universities are thinking. You know, we really do need to take into account quality and diversity issues properly. You know, there's a real, you know, a positive pressure to not treat all students as if they're the same. But that also then creates all these tensions that Anthony talks about. Oh, uh, completely. I mean, you you can't underestimate the complexity of the legal environment in which universities operate. I always struggle to think of any other um, provider of services that has the breadth of issues that universities are trying to deal with, Uh, you know, because you've got people living, working, studying you know, ent- uh, entertaining together, you know, and that creates all sorts of, of issues. I think, again, what, what we're sort of seeing is certainly in response to something like the COVID pandemic, lots of institutions did try to do things like make it easier for students to raise their complaints internally. You know, they simplified processes and so on. And so 
I'm sure some of why we haven't seen that big translation into what's in front of the OIA yet is because whatever dissatisfaction there was, was to some extent managed. And I think we can't also discuss this without thinking about, you know, the, the, the potential group litigation is out there, which I'm not sure of what the current numbers are, but significant numbers of students have signed up to that. So that, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier. With we, we have now such a complex way in which complaints are visible at a national level, you know, whether it's through complaints to the OFS or group litigation or, or the OIA stuff or what institutions are doing themselves that I'm not sure we've really got that clear picture. And it's, it's, it is difficult to draw sort of any really, really strong conclusions from it. Yes, just finally on this, James. I mean, obviously, we could measure the number of complaints that end up on the OIA's desk. We could, in theory, I guess, measure the number of complaints that are kind of coming into providers and being settled locally. But to make a complaint, you need to kind of understand what you could make a complaint about and have the confidence to do so. And, and, you know, if I think about the different social makeup of different uh, providers and the, 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 the kind of level of risk that a student would be taking on when making a complaint in some very small providers and in some settings. We really need to know that, don't we? Yes. And if I could just reflect on, on a few bits, Jim, from this, I think there's an interesting question about complaint through media and social media, whether whether that is a reflection of the times we are living in and it's the medium of choice for people who want to make complaints or a reflection of the frustration that people don't believe will be dealt with in their institution. And, you know, I think it's also worth pointing out that the OFS will make interventions based on media reporting. So there is a yes. sort of... There's definitely you know, evidence of that. Yeah. Yes. And yes, yeah, so there is, there is a thing there. I, th- I think, you know, this isn't too sort of dissimilar to a lot of the conversations we have about how do you measure quality in small institutions where statistics are often hugely visible versus the large ones where they can be hidden. And I wonder if we need, you know, a bit of a dual approach here. So there are going to be places, and we know the programmes, because it's listed in the report, where there are disproportionately high numbers of complaints, and whether that needs that targeted prevention work, and whether that needs, you know, more information to students, and whether we can target that more effectively, maybe to work through the students' unions, and whether there there is those more general issues, where ultimately, I think it is going to be students' unions who are the people who should be mediating that, or who will mediate that alongside institutions, the data is really, really hard. So I do wonder if that sort of information prevention approach might be the closest we can get. Well, fascinating stuff. Plenty more on the site about all of this. Uh, now let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Ronnie Bamber, and I'm blogging on Wonky this week about the Scottish enhancement approach, which I've been involved with for the last 20 years. The blog discusses some of the transitions that we have gone through in learning to develop an enhancement approach over 20 years, and I've used the 7S framework, strategies, structures, etc., to try and draw out some of the dimensions of those transitions. I've also added an 8S, which is that of students and student engagement, which is a signature element of the Scottish Enhancement Approach. I'm Sonda Christel. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at UCAS. 
And this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the journey to a million and the potential return of the scramble for places headlines. By 2030, higher education applicants could rise by 30%. And in response, UCAS is releasing 50 essays up until the summer, exploring the challenges and opportunities that brings. The second installment of these essays include contributions from Nicola Dandridge, Joe Saxton, Chris Hill, and the Right Honourable Lord David Willits, who's discussing funding and international partnerships. Further essays will be released in May and June. Key themes this time include the importance of information advice and guidance for students, the need for diverse choices, and the role of digital advancements such as online learning. With no obvious current plans for significant intake expansion, we must now have a debate on how we support applicants and maintain the UK's global competitiveness, ensuring a prosperous future for the Journey to a Million cohort. If you want to follow our national debate on the future of access to HE, go to ucas.com slash j2am. Now, next up, the Lords Industry and Regulators Committee review of OFS rumbles on, and this week it heard some student voice, Anthony. Uh, indeed, I always feel like when I'm um, uh, speaking about OFS, um, uh, that I'm rather like the um, guy who manages the um, comic store in the, Sim- uh, in the Simpsons, showing my age by referencing the, wow. uh, uh, the Simpsons. This was not my bingo muttering, card this morning. <laughs> mu- muttering under my breath, worst regulator ever. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and, um, and so it appears from uh, evidence presented in front of the uh, committee. So they heard from, uh, from students from the formal panel chair uh, and also from a panel member, that is the student panel members. Um, They also heard from uh, the NUS vice president, uh, Chloe Field. I mean, my first uh, impression on listening to the evidence and um, there's a, a very good uh, video of the committee uh, of the committee hearing on um, uh, online, and you can fast forward through some of the duller bits, but um, certainly worth paying attention to. Um, my, my first impression was, um, as often, um, uh, uh, how great some of our students are when, um, uh, and how great some of our student representation are. I was extraordinarily in. Uh, uh, um, uh, Impressed, impressed even by NUS, which is um, uh, not something I would normally say. Uh, 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 I would normally say. Um, so it's clear that um, the relationships with the students have, um, um, from this evidence, not been well conducted by uh, uh, by OFS. In- interesting stuff. Let's uh, let's have a listen to a clip. Uh, I would agree that I don't feel that the OFS is sufficiently independent from government. Um, I think there are examples of issues where uh, the OFS has stood its ground. So one example would be in the NSS review. Uh, DfE tasked the OFS with looking at whether NSS was driving grade inflation. That's what they believe to be the case. OFS did lots of looking at evidence and, and trying to you know, see the argument from both sides and came back with a balanced view that on the evidence they'd looked at, they didn't believe that was the case. I think that's a good example of the OFS standing on the ground where there's something that realistically they can't evidence. Um, however, when we get to issues like freedom of expression, it's a slightly different case, I think. What I will say is that I, so in part of preparing for today, I watched back the testimony that was given by uh, Sir Michael Barber and Nicola Dandridge. Um, and Michael clearly outlined there that, that desire in the early days to set a course of, of kind of independent activity that would withstand the turbulence of, of government. And I think that was very much the case in the early days that I was 
there, um, but increasingly less so towards the end of my tenure. Um, and you'll see that as well from the flurry of uh, guidance letters that have come from ministers. You know, it's, it's quite a, a huge volume, really, um, in the scheme of things. And I would say that I think that there are particular issues where there are um, policies that OFS will have to then implement and enforce freedom of speech being one of those where the interests of students seem so polarised from the desires of of government and about which of those should win out or or more importantly I think what role the OFS has in bringing those stakeholders together and coming to a a negotiation that works for for all involved and I think what we've ended up with is a a legislation that potentially will uh, uphold the opportunities of students to bear witness to other people's free speech rather than securing their own I mean particularly through things like wanting to conduct research on on topics that may be controversial uh, of writing a balanced and well-evidenced essay but their conclusion just differs from their lecturers and in those cases yes there are opportunities to complain and to ask for reconsideration but realistically the OIA would consider that as academic judgment and there's no recourse for those students and I don't see that happening through that legislation either Um, but also in terms of the complaints process and how that will work for students I don't think the students have been sufficiently well um, consulted on how that might happen either Um, But I do think increasingly there is a tension there, and I've seen that tension play out not only in, um, I think, less productive relationships between student panel members, including myself, and members of staff and members of the board, um, but also in the reluctance then of student panel members to really freely speak their mind. And I believe that in those panel meetings, that's the one place where they really should be able to say whatever they feel uh, is important to them and to other students. One example of that was where an issue was raised that is um, quite controversial in the sector. It's around inclusive curricula and broadening of perspectives in in curricula. Um, That view was raised, and after that, I noticed a significant kind of lack of or lessening of engagement uh, with myself and other students in the organisation. But also, unfortunately, that um, a senior member of staff came to a uh, panel meeting um, and provided some quite critical feedback to students about that with and I believe, and I've spoken to other panel members about this as well, um, a sort of veiled implication that if students were to continue to say things that were not aligned to their particular views, um, that the position in the future of the panel may be reassessed. It wasn't, it wasn't that veiled. I also want to, <laughs> I also want to add. So, James, you, you, you listened to it. What, what are your impressions? Yeah, I mean, maybe if, if Anthony's comic book guy, maybe I'm, I'm Mr. Skinner, in that, uh, Principal Skinner in that meme where he says, maybe I'm wrong. No, no, it's the children who are wrong. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose my two reflections, Jim, right, is that we can spend a lot of time discussing about, you know, were the OFS treating the student representatives with the due amount of care and attention and respect that they deserve for giving up their time to do this and they were invited. And I've no doubt, as, you know, Anthony says, they're articulate and diligent do their work really well. I think the bigger question is, what is the incentives for the Office of Students to listen to students generally in these type of forums? And I think it's undoubtable to me that we've lost something in the move from the old QA regime that had student engagement as a key part of quality to this system we have now that seems this sort of unhappy halfway house between, you know, we'll listen to students when they make complaints, we have this sort of quasi-representative function, but it's hard to see how that student voice is truly embedded in quality in the way it works now. And I think the debate you saw yesterday is in some ways an inevitable corollary of the way that has been set up. Mm. I mean, you know, so I don't know what you thought, Smita, but I mean, when I was listening to it, I was thinking, okay, I mean, you can imagine that Chloe is going to kind of pitch up and be critical, right? You know, it's it's OFS, it's marketisation and so on. 
but but you know Martha and Franchi. I mean, you know, when they were, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I, I know of them from when they were student officers in their respective student unions. These are the sort of people who would defend their institution to the hilt, even if they'd had an argument behind the scenes with their vice chancellor. Do you know what I mean? How did it get that bad in there that they pitch up to the lords and 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 spill this tea? Uh, well, well, absolutely. And, and of course, um, bearing in mind what you've just said, in what they were saying, they were going to st- nonetheless still trying to do it in a very measured way. So this was not them just being kind of uh, uh, ill-advisedly candid. They, this was their measured and what they felt able to share with the committee about their experience. Um, so I think there is a huge perception problem for the OFS, and this is just one aspect of it. Um, it does not come across as an organisation that listens to people particularly. Um, and it's long been clear that it doesn't necessarily listen to providers. I suspect even if we all, you know, feared this might be the case, it was, it was nonetheless really shocking to hear that they didn't listen to their own student panel either. That is the only um, way that they systematically hear what students want. And as the office for students, you would have expected them to be very, you know, if, even, if they, even if they didn't want to necessarily take things forward, you would expect them to be very careful about making students feel like they were being listened to. And that's what really surprised me, that even in this limited way of them wanting to put forward matters that they, they considered important, they wanted to comment on things that they felt weren't important. The OFS wasn't able to strike that judgment. And, and then that balance between, we, we don't have to take everything you say on board, but we will listen to you with respect, with care, and make you feel that you have been heard. That's really, you know, 101 stuff for a regular. Yeah, so, if I miss it, you know, so um, uh, um, uh, I was already aware, you know, very conscious of the poor communication, ex- outward communication, um, uh, that there were OFS exib- uh, exhibits. So to hear that they were neither um, uh, communicating well nor listening well is extraordinarily disturb uh, uh, is extraordinarily disturbing. And certainly, I don't feel that as a provider, my voice um, uh, is heard. Quite frankly, I don't feel as a provider, my voice is sought. Um, certainly, during my time um, as an institutional leader, that's been uh, uh, that's been the case. Now, we shouldn't underplay also. The the, uh, the political end of the message that was being con- um, uh, uh, conveyed, that the students felt that when they were articulating things that um, uh, uh, were, ran counter to um, uh, the political guidance that OFS uh, were in receipt, uh, uh, receipt of, that their input was conspicuously um, uh, that their input was made conspicuously unwelcome. Now, setting aside that the fact that that's extraordinarily poor politics, um, um, it reflects on the bind that the OFS, the larger bind that the OFS um, uh, presents at the mo- uh, 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 at the moment. It, it, it's deeply disturbing. Yes, but, 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 but Anthony, locally, right? I mean, you know, you, if I think about the decisions that you must have to make and your senior team have to make, that's 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 true too right i mean there will be moments where there are regulatory pressures or funding pressures or pressures from the community or whatever but um there's also then you know both an art and a skill isn't there to to wanting to boost the confidence of student representatives such that they are able to properly contribute to your thinking you know this isn't just about giving them a 
a cup of coffee and, and a couple of compliments about their blog. This is about actually wanting to learn from students, isn't it? I, I mean, absolutely. And if we ask it, then we have to ask ourselves, given what we heard there, which stakeholders are the OFS satisfying? Um, uh, you know, they're not satisfying the providers and they're not satisfying uh, 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 um, uh, um, uh, the students. And heaven only knows, well, actually, I know, um, um, on this particular, you know, how they're treating their designated um, uh, their designated bod- bodies, and who's uh, uh, um, um, uh, who's left? Do we believe that um, uh, 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 DFE are satisfied? No evidence to suppose that um, uh, the political stakeholders feel that the OFS um, is. Uh, uh, you know, in engaging in the right way in the overall political discourse around higher education. So who, for whom is it getting it right? Yes, yes. I mean, I mean look, you know, I mean, Anthony's, you know, Anthony's almost certainly right in terms of the kind of, you know, the, the, the complexity of the, of the relationships, James. But, you know, the other, the other impression I get, and, and I think this comes through in the contributions um, that, that were at, at the committee is you don't get, you never get much of a sense that OFS is curious. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Curious about the world, about what happens inside universities, or there's a lot of, well, we think X, come and have a go, give us some feedback. But it's like, well, we need some curiosity, don't we, at some point? Some fact-finding, some chatting, some... <laughs> yes, right, and... So I think one of the difficulties is obviously the OF, the OFS aren't here. And if I was to take if if I was to defend the OFS for a moment, if I was to take a look, what what do I think the position is? There's there's potentially a few reasons. So one is that they may argue actually we do lots of fact finding. It's just that the way that we do it isn't either the way it's been done before or the sector doesn't necessarily like it. So we do lots of data interrogation. We said we do boots on the ground. We do you know events and things like that. But we just have a fundamentally different view to the way that universities should be regulated to the way that some universities have themselves and that inevitably leads to conflict. It's not a view I necessarily agree with, albeit I think it is potentially a defensible view. Where I think the difficulty comes in is where you set an expectation that it's not just saying, look, we think we regulate like this and therefore we do that. What they say is we regulate like this, but we do this in conversation with lots of people. And it sets an expectation that they're not going to meet. And I think it's really interesting as if you work, if you lurk in the wonky comments on our blogs, as I often do, the thing that gets the most attention is OFS asked for this thing. It got a hundred odd responses from institutions. OFS did the thing it was always going to do anyway. And that is what gets people vexed, I think, more than anything. I think it is a poor way to regulate, but I think it is also poor politics because all that happens in the end is the question comes, okay, well, why should I bother? And instead, we might as well just have a system where you tell us this is the system. I'm all in favour of this creative tension between the views of a regulator and the views of institutions, but it only works if that tension is brought about by genuine conversation and feedback. And as you say, Jim, a curiosity about what it is that's happening. Yes. Now, 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 Smita, on a related issue, of course, uh, you know, this it isn't like a health regulator. This is a regulator that, on one level or another, regulates the practice of listening to students locally and is about to gain massive powers around regulating free speech. So, you know, in some ways, it has to be better than most other regulators at this sort of stuff, doesn't it? It it absolutely does. I mean, I think that the the irony of being accused of you know, having chilled speech uh, amongst your student panel when you are just about to get the the responsibility for enforcing free speech elsewhere. 
I don't know. I, you know, none of us know how the OFS has reacted to this. And in fairness to them, we don't know what their response to this is. Although I struggle to see how any response would be a good response um, from their point of view. You know, if they try and uh, if they try and dispute it, it's not good. If they accept it, it's not good. If they try and minimise it, it's not good. So that it's difficult to know what their evidence in response to this will be. But they will have the opportunity um, to give it. But if if I was sitting on the board of the OFS. I would take one look at this evidence and realise I've now got a massive credibility problem. I cannot go opining about free speech in the way that they have done and the importance of it and, and the, the, the importance of hearing, you know, different views and, and, and fostering an environment where everybody is able to express their views. Having this sort of evidence floating out there, it, it just, it's just not a credible position. So, so, final question on this. Smita, tactically, from the government's point of view... There was a period where it was really, really concerned with putting its own people on boards of regulators and quangos and so on. That was, a, you know, there was this sense that there'd been a march through the institutions of the, you know, the liberal lefties, the, the, you know, the woke people. And so, you know, it needed its own people. And to some extent, James Wharton is a product of that agenda. But tactically, do you think it was a, a smart thing to do, even if that, even if that was a legitimate um, aim? Well, of course, it's not. It's not a sensible thing to do. It's not a sensible thing to do on two levels. Um, the first is, uh, if you are a, a government of a country, of course, you are, you know, naturally of a political bent, and you want to put forward your your, your kind of particular um, agenda and your manifesto. But you've also got to think about what happens when the next government comes in. What happens when you know they want to put their own stamp on things? And that's why we ought to really be kind of, you know subscribing to some basic moderate standards of public governance, which is we don't stuff uh, quangos and NDPBs and all the rest of it with our appointees because the next lot will do the same and then we won't like what they're doing. And all that's happening is that, you know, important um, national uh, assets like universities are being pulled in one direction and then the other, and that's not good. So it was not good on that level. And the second is it actually has fundamentally created a problem for the OFS that they wouldn't have had if they'd had a different chair, which is that whatever they're trying to do, the perception is always, well, this is a political, politically driven decision. And it's really difficult for them to shake that decision. So on both the kind of ethical principle level, it was a bad thing to do. But even from a, you know, sort of Machiavellian, we want to get done what we want to get done. It was a silly thing to do. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Now, finally this week, the question of whether QR funding needs a root and branch review has been in the air this week, Smita. Thanks, Jim. Yes. So somebody who spends a distressingly large amount of my time focusing on the teaching aspects of universities through the OFS um, uh, piece, it was refreshing to be looking at uh, research rather than teaching. But um, I was very sorry to find that it, it, it was not, a, it, not necessarily in a particularly happy place either. Um, and there were, there were obviously two specific things that I think uh, have been the focus recently. One is the question of QR funding. Is it properly understood? Does there need to be more transparency? And we had Paul Nurse um, speaking about this at the Science and Technology uh, Committee. And his view certainly was that there needed to be sort of fairly radical uh, treatment, he described it as, from UKRI uh, Research England and the new Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. So I think... Um, Something that, you know, one of the, the, the bedrocks of our research system is now b- being looked at and being questioned about whether it's, it's quite the right thing. Um, and then, of course, separately, we had just uh, over Easter the publication of Plan B, uh, the pioneer alternative to um, Horizon Europe. And um, I think I agreed with a piece that James wrote for, for Wonky. In itself, it's um, a really kind of, you know, good plan it's 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 we, we should be supportive of all that the the question is whether it's it's good enough to stand alone separate from uh, association with horizon or whether it should be something that we do on top of um associating with horizon and i think both those things actually both both the themes i've just talked about raised this fundamental question which i think again has been picked up quite recently which is we talk about our world um leading research and it's something that we are rightly incredibly proud of. But are we fundamentally missing these fragilities and vulnerabilities in it, which are sort of masking the sort of serious kind of support that it's going to need if it's going to maintain or indeed reclaim that status where it's um, starting to fall behind? So those were my thoughts, Jim. Yes, Anthony, I, 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 I don't know what you think about it. I, I, I thought this idea that, um, partly because all of this was happening on a day when I was with a whole bunch of student unions who were doing d- disaster scenario planning, right? And when we got to the end of the day, a lot of them were saying, well, it'd be a shame not to do some of this stuff now we've worked out how to do it if everything went wrong. <laughs> and there's a sense of that here too, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So look, first, first things first, I've got to say, I'm on the board of UKRI. Um, uh, um, uh, so I'm not speaking for UK, uh, UKRI, um, but I need to put that, um, uh, on the, on the table at, um, at least. So, um, first the nurse, uh, uh, first the nurse review. Um, I think there's something that was extremely interesting about the nurse review, and there was something actually a little disappointing about the nurse review. So what was really interesting about the nurse review is that it did give a sort of overall synoptic account of the, um, uh, of the landscape. And I think it didn't look at particular sets of institutions. It looked at our research system as a whole. And I think Paul Nurse should be commended for that. What was disappointing was that he didn't really take it anywhere. And ultimately, I thought that the um, uh, the recommendations uh, were relatively weak. Were relatively weak. Um, I um, I personally believe that QR and the dual funding 
system is the bedrock of our existing research uh, uh, system. On balance, I would prefer, and I think there are good, you know, managerial reasons for actually putting a larger proportion of our funding out through QR rather than um, um, competitive research funding uh, mechanisms. So that would be my um, uh, that would be my preference. That university should um, uh, and uh, should give a strategic account of how they have spent their money um, is um, uh, and their their plans seems entirely reasonable. And of course, we've got some way along that along that line. Where I would be more radical, and I think the direction that nurse points out is who actually is eligible to receive QR. It seems to me quite strange that we've got quite a lot of research um, uh, institutions, most notably things like um, uh, um, uh, the PSRBs, that are not receiving uh, PSRI, so are not receiving uh, uh, um, uh, QR uh, QR funding. And I think the obvious thing would be to extend the range. Uh, uh, um, uh, the range. You, yes, I agree. I think the pioneer work has been excellent, and um, uh, want to commend Chris Smith and others in UKRI who've done that. Um, uh, who've done that work. It is still the case that we would prefer, on balance, right. Uh, um, Horizon. It seems unlikely we can afford both in the current uh, in the current environment. We should make quite sure we don't lose some of the merits of that work. So I think. <laughs> so overall, what I think Nurse gets right is he points toward a research ecosystem that is more fragile than we might have imagined. And I think for a long time, I was always of the view that the UK is excellent at research, but we're not as good at turning it into things in the real economy. What I think Nurse gets absolutely right is that our position in the world is fragile without horizon. The funding system needs a look at, and Anthony, I'm more inclined towards your view that QR is a good thing and we could do with more of it. And it's also fragile because conditions for researchers are often difficult because of bureaucracy and limits on pairs and things like that. So my, my encouragement or sort of my last thoughts on this is if we consider not only how do we be brilliant, but how do we be stable and certain and put things on a longer term footing, then the entirety of the research ecosystem will benefit. And I think that means taking bits from Horizon, which I still think is the best option, and bits of the pioneer scheme in infrastructure investment, investment in people and the like. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Anthony, Smeeter, James, our news editor, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. Mark will be here next week. And until then, stay wonky. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.